As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I want to begin our time simply by looking at our text. So let's look as you're turning there to John chapter 14. We're going to look at the first six verses together. And my prayer this week has been that our hearts would be greatly encouraged, that we would learn more of what it means to hope in Jesus Christ. Let's read it together. It says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Perhaps one of the most uh, frustrating questions I get asked, and maybe you can resonate with this, is this. Hey, um, do you want to know the good news or the bad news? <laughs> I think the answer to that is fairly obvious. Uh, nobody enjoys receiving bad news. In fact, when you hear that, when somebody presents that to you, just put yourself in that situation for a moment and think about what begins to well up inside your heart and your mind. Do you want to hear the bad news? I have bad news to share with you today. I think each of us have experienced degrees of, of hearing bad news in our lives, and some of us sitting in this room are going through some incredibly difficult times, and they've heard bad news, or you're anticipating hearing bad news. I'm sorry, we, we don't have any room for you in this company. You're, we're going to have to terminate your employment. I'm sorry, we can't lend you any money. Uh, we have to deny this loan. I'm sorry, you're going to have to sell what you own to pay off what you owe I'm sorry, I don't think this is recoverable. I'm sorry, you don't have very much longer to live. It's inevitable, each of us faces challenging circumstances and situations. We all experience the trouble of this life. And in the, in the beginning of this text, Jesus is speaking to a group of disciples, his very close, intimate friends. The 11 at this point, 12 minus Judas. And he speaks very intimately and very caringly into their souls and he looks at them and he sees them though his soul is also deeply troubled because he's looking towards the cross he looks at his disciples and he sees that there is an inner turmoil going on their hearts are, are, are literally just shifting and shattering and shaking within them You can hear just the tenderness in the voice of Jesus Christ as he looks at his disciples and he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Their hearts were greatly troubled. There is really, if you look at the original manuscripts, there's no chapter breaks in the original language. This is simply picking up where we left off in the life of the disciples in this upper room. Jesus is looking to the cross only hours and he will be hanging on a cross. Peter, or excuse me, uh, Judas has just betrayed the 12. He has shown himself to be a traitor. John knows the truth. Jesus has told them that one of them will betray him. Peter has said, I, I will go to the death for you. I will follow you. And Jesus reminds him that he will be uh, denying him three times before the rooster crows. Everything feels at this point like it's on unstable ground, shifting ground, and the disciples' minds are beginning to whirl with confusion. And worst of all, the worst news perhaps that any human being can get is one you deeply love is about to pass from this life to the next. And they get it at this point. This is why Peter is, is so adamant that he will fight to the death for Jesus because he, he keys in on what Jesus has been saying all along. I'm about to die. I'm about to leave. I'm going to be gone. And all they hear is the one that they love, the one that they've followed, they've given up everything for, is about to leave them. And so, yes, their, their hearts are troubled. The idea there of hearts being troubled you might say it like this, let not your hearts be full of commotion and anxiety. 
let not, one commentator says, like, says it like this, I love this, let not your heart shudder within you. How many of us have experienced this? One commentator said this, we live, our times could be characterized as the cardiac age, the age of anxiety, the age of stresses and pressures, the tyranny of the urgent, and just this constant bombardment of pressures that are just squeezing in on us. How many of us in this room have not experienced great degrees of anxiety and pressure? So many in our culture, maybe even in this room, feel like they have no peace, no rest, that nothing is settled, that they're living in confusion and chaos, and the unknown is constantly before them. And the question before us is simply this, what is the cure for an anxious heart? The cure is simple, though it is not easy. The cure is to trust in Jesus Christ. Let's develop that thought together. This message, the theme of Jesus speaking in this text is this, I want you to experience comfort because look, this world is hard, circumstances are difficult. I want to give you a hope that anchors you in the chaos of this life. I want you to experience peace and rest and how much do our souls need to hear that? How much does my own soul desperately need to hear this truth, that there can be peace and rest, there can be hope in the midst of chaos? And Jesus turns to his disciples, and the first thing he says is this, remember your present hope. Remember your present hope. The very first verse, as he, as he gives them what is a command, but a command with gentleness. Let not your hearts be troubled. Stop being anxious. And then he makes the statement that hopefully brings clarity into their hearts. He says, believe in God. You could translate that more like a question or an, an indicative in the original language, which is this, you believe in God. It's, it's a, sorry, not a question, a statement of fact. You believe in God, therefore, believe in me too. He draws upon their common foundation, their trust in God. And Jesus, essentially, as he speaks to them, is, is saying that he is worthy of the same degree of trust as God the Father, because the two are one. We'll see that thought, the two being one, unfolded in the rest of this chapter in coming weeks. Just as they have known the faithfulness of God in the Old Testament, Jesus is calling them to understand the faithfulness of following him as their Lord and Master. There's a sense in which he is tapping into their knowledge of the Old Testament, their knowledge of God. And so when he says, you believe in God, there are reasons they believe in God, very concrete reasons. And in this moment, it's likely that what's welling up in their minds or the intent of Jesus is to bring into their minds this picture of the God of the Old Testament. Who is the God that they know? Why is it that they have such a, a bedrock faith? such a deep trust, and instantly flooding into their minds would have been the stories of the faithfulness of God throughout the Old Testament. Do you remember when God delivered his people from the bondage of, to slavery? Do you remember when he led them through the wilderness? Do you remember when he led them through the promised land? Do you remember when the walls of Jericho came down? Do you remember, do you remember, and the picture is simply this, do you remember that God has always been faithful? He's never let you down. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's been faithful, faithful, faithful all the way to the end. And the cry of God's people should be this. Our God is faithful. And he taps into this concept that God is faithful. He's always been that way. And he links himself to that in their hearts and minds. And he says, just as God has always been faithful, believe that I will be faithful to the end with you. I know it looks hard, I know it looks confusing, I know it looks like I'm gonna be gone and out of your life, but I'm telling you this now, trust me, trust me, I will not leave you or forsake you. I know how painful it looks. I, I know how confusing it must be right now, but I will not forsake you. I think of John 3. The story of Nicodemus, this great teacher of the nation of Israel, he sneaks to Jesus by cover of night. 
And he comes to Jesus, and one of the things that's so fascinating that he says to Jesus is this, Jesus, we know that you come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless he is from God. And I'm I'm not sure at that point, this is early on in the ministry of Jesus, but one thing is for sure, either Nicodemus had seen some really incredible miracles, maybe he had seen the, the, the turning of the water into wine, maybe he had seen other miracles that Jesus had been doing, maybe he had just heard of them, but whatever it was, he knew that there was something unique and powerful about Jesus, that he was not like anyone else. Just imagine, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples sitting around this table, and Jesus is saying, just trust me, just trust me. They had had three years with Jesus. Can you imagine what those three years would have been like? Can you imagine the, the things they got to experience, the things that they got to see, the things that they got to do? There's a sense in which Jesus is saying, look, you've seen more than Nicodemus ever even dreamed of seeing. You were there when I turned water into wine. You were there when I healed the blind, when I healed the crippled beggar at the pool of Bethesda. You were there when I cast out demons of the demoniac. You were there, right? You were there when I raised Lazarus from the dead. You were there. And so Jesus is coming alongside them and he's saying, hey, don't forget what you've seen in me. Don't forget about how faithful I've been. Don't forget about my power. Don't forget how I've loved you. Don't forget how I, I was there that, that time in the storm. I came walking, marching across the waves when you were crying out for your very life. I came and I rescued you and I, I commanded the waves and the wind to cease and they obeyed. Remember? Draw upon your experience with me, with me. Draw upon, here's what's really important for you and I, draw upon your knowledge of me. The power you've seen me display. Remember how I brought you safely through all of the storms in this life. Remember your present hope is me because I've been there all the way through. And he declares to them that trusting in Jesus, the Son of God, is the remedy for a troubled heart. It is the solution to the chaos in our soul. The hope of the present is the God who never changes, is it not? We believe in a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful to the end. His steadfast love endures forever. And while everything seems to be unraveling, there is always one constant, one stable, sure footing, and that is our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. My mind goes to Isaiah 26, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. Just listen to this, especially if you're wrestling this morning. There's anxiousness and trouble in your own soul. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because, listen, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Listen, listen, church. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He cannot be moved. He does not shift as the shadows of this world. He is stable. He is a fortress. What hope for us? And I just think practically you ask the question maybe, well, how can I develop this sort of trust in the Lord in the midst of this context? Think about the disciples and let's apply what Jesus was saying to them to our own lives. He's saying to them, remember who I am. Remember what you've seen. Tap into what you know. And the same, listen, Christian, is true for you and I. God has given us a record. Jesus Christ has given us a record of who he is right here. You see, the key to cultivating that kind of a stable, focused trust in Jesus Christ is to be a person of the book, a person of the word of God. This is it. See, from here, I want to just give you a bit of a paradigm for how the word of God works. There's kind of a cycle to Christian growth. It's this, knowledge leads to, uh, uh, knowledge leads to belief, trust. Belief leads to character, and character leads to action. 
And so there's this cycle in the Christian life that God says, do you want to grow as a follower of Christ? Do you want to know what it means to follow me with all of your heart? Well, you need to deepen the well of your knowledge. You need to soak in my word. You need to see who I am in the pages of scripture. And with that, your belief will be ever increasing. And that's one of the purposes of the series that we're doing. Right? Jesus, see, believe, live, and, and God wants to cultivate within us a deeper faith, a deeper trust in Jesus Christ because he wants to continue to mold and shape our character into that of Jesus Christ so that we might live in him and for him. So we must be people of the word of God. I, I trust is such a great word, isn't it? I love it, but you know, the problem is, is we live in a culture, we live in a society that, that really has no concept of trust or the, the, the object of trust. You know, so the world will, will see you in trouble and they'll say, you know, don't let your heart in trouble, but they can't give you anything more than that. Well, just trust that it's going to be fine. Or, or, or you know, they'll come alongside, oh, that sounds really hard. They're there. You know, the mantra of our culture is don't worry, be happy, right? Just do it. Who cares about the circumstances? Who cares about the situation? How many of you have tried that and been like, yeah, not, not working here? See, this is how the world deals with things, and I just hear stuff like that, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you just, really, that's it? That's all you have to offer? Everything is falling apart, and the answer is simply, it's gonna be okay, just, just, just trust that everything's gonna work out, and that's not the answer of Scripture. See, the world deals with things by trying to escape reality or ignore the situation. That's how the world deals with things, and some, sadly, that's how sometimes we as Christians try to deal with things. The anxieties, the pressures, we just try to escape reality or ignore the situation. You know, the world says just take a pill, get your mind off of it, focus on something else. You do something to temporarily fulfill the, the, the need in your heart. And, and here's the problem. All of those answers are shallow and inadequate and temporary. They treat the symptoms, but they don't treat the cause. And so you can, you can mask, you can dull the pain of this life through a whole variety of things, you know, drug, drugs, sex, alcohol, entertainment. I mean, you just name it, you name it, and, and the world will throw it your way. Materialism, you just get, get what you need to kind of take your eyes off it, dull the pain. That's like trying to take Tylenol to cure cancer. The answer is to get to the root cause. And the answer is trusting Jesus Christ, that understanding that he is our hope, that the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God, he is our hope. I, I love the story of Hudson Taylor. He's a famous missionary. He's the founder of China's inland missions uh, way back in the 1850s. If, you, if you're gonna read a biography on a Christian missionary, Hudson Taylor, he's your guy. Phenomenal, phenomenal testimony of faithfulness and of this usefulness in God's hands and, and just wrestling through the trials and tragedies of life. While he was on the mission field, just get this for a second, he lost one of his wives and he lost some of his children. He endured countless hardships and setbacks and the pain was, humanly speaking, utterly immeasurable. We can't even imagine the kind of pain this guy went through, most of us. And yet, here's, here's what he said. In the midst of this, in the midst of his missionary uh, uh, um, endeavors, after all of this tragedy and, and pain, he says this, confidence in God's faithfulness assures one that the outcome will be good. God is, God is working for our good, for in Christ. How do I know I can trust him? Some of you are like, how, really? Like, I just, how? How can I know uh, I can trust him? And that's why I just push you back to get, get to know the God of the word. Get to know who he is. And what you'll find out is this. He's a God who deeply and intimately cares for you. He's a God of great love. You can trust someone who loves you deeply. You can trust someone who loves you to the end. And, and the cross is the greatest picture of the love of God, isn't it, for us? How do we know we can trust God in all things? Because we can trust him with the very most important thing, which is this, our soul. He sent his son. 
He said, I love you. And even while you're an enemy, even while you're rebelling against me, this is good news for some of us in this room, even while you've been walking away from me, I still loved you. I came to rescue you. So God has shown his love in the most powerful way in purchasing us for himself, adopting us into his family. And he's saying, look, little children. Remember we saw that last week in the text? Little children. Just think about that, parents. How many conversations have I had with my son or daughter at nighttime when, when they're lying there in bed and they're, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm just so scared, don't leave. And my answer, you know what my answer more often than not is? The first thing is this, is, is you know, I'll look at my daughter, Karis, do you trust me? Yeah, yes, dad. Do you, do you think I'm gonna let anything happen to you, Karis? No. Because you know I love you, right? Yeah. I'd like to say that always works. But you know, more importantly than that, you want to know why I remind her of? I'm your father and I care for you, but you want to know who's greater than me, who loves you more than I do? You want to know who you can trust beyond me because you know what, I'm, I'm not always going to be there, but you know who always is. You can trust God. And, and you know he loves you because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. He's shown us his love. We have every reason to trust him. Look, if you're in Christ this morning and you're just holding on, look, hold on tighter to Jesus Christ. He has shown you that he he is trustworthy. He is faithful to the end. Look to your present hope. Secondly, I want you to see what John says in the next couple of verses. He says, look to your future hope. Look to your future hope. Don't just be caught up having your eyes fixed upon this world and and your circumstances. Be otherworldly. Have one eye fixed on eternity. He says in verses 2 and and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And here is one of the most comforting verses in all the Bible. There is this picture of care and love, and no matter what you're facing now, you can be assured that there is something worth waiting for. You know, it's been said that we all long for heaven, even if we don't realize it. The anxieties and troubles of this world can often consume us. And you and I, we we are prone to fix our eyes on these things, and so we need regular reminders of eternity. And so here, Jesus gives us a bit of a window into heaven. He says this, he says, in my Father's house, house there is singular, there are many rooms the King James Version says many mansions. Uh, I get what they're doing. That's a, that's a bad translation. I get what they're doing. I think they're trying to display the, the majesty and the splendor of the Father's house. But when you think of mansion, what you think of is all these individual houses, right? Like it's some kind of a compound, but they're all separate living spaces. And the picture Jesus wants to paint for us is so very different than that. Instead of thinking of individual dwelling places, it's like we all live in a giant apartment building. Some of you are like, well, that doesn't sound like much fun. (laughs) Just in case you get the wrong idea, look, it's not like you're going to be living in a broom closet somewhere. I I remember living, I remember being in seminary, and and there was, uh, we were poor, but there were people who were poorer than us. I remember living in a, a studio apartment. For some of you who don't know what that means, it means there's not even, like, it's just one giant room. That's it. And I remember talking to couples who had kids at this time, and, and some of their kids, literally their room was the closet. <laughs> some were like, that's ridiculous. Well, you do what you got to do. I think you pull out a drawer, you put one kid in, right? Pull, <laughs> it's the next one. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. We're not going to a broom closet. We're not going to some kind of like motel room, you know, this junky motel where you're like, okay, I'm not even sure I can sleep on this bed. Some of you are are like, well, I I just, you know, I really like open space. I'd like my own plot of land, thank you very much. Um, You're gonna be in the Father's house. I don't think you're gonna be disappointed. And the picture, listen, the picture of the Father's house is so important because it speaks to intimacy and closeness. 
in this culture back when John was writing and still sometimes today in the, 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 the East, Eastern, Middle Eastern cultures, we are reminded of the picture of how families operated. And this for us paints the picture of a father who when he had a son getting married, he would build an extra room onto his house. Some of you are like, that sounds really problematic. Like, just don't want to even go. Yeah, and every child, guess what? Every child that got married, and they had a lot of kids, right, back then. Another room being added. And sometimes you, you look even today in, in the Middle East, and, and it's formed a circle with each additional room with a communal gathering spot in the middle. And the picture was this. I mean, we love our family. There's proximity. There's closeness. There's relationship. There's community. And though, you know, we, we need to get outside of our, we're, we're so used to our Western individualism, right? I just need to get away from people. I don't like being too close to people. My neighbor's house is five feet away from mine, and that's too close. And the picture here is this, no, no, no. In God's house, we are knit tightly together. What's this place like Exactly. Well, you can go to a whole lot of places today to try and find out what heaven's like, and all kinds of people are writing all kinds of stupid books. I have to say that, just pet peeve. Like, heaven is for real, yes, I know, I know. And I don't need a, a four-year-old to tell me. I'm like, well, I'll go read a book on what heaven's like. I got one, thank you very much, I have one. And it's way better, way better. All right, pet peeve gone. <laughs> You know, in fact, I just, I'm, I'm drawn to Paul's words in, in 2 Corinthians. In fact, turn your Bible. Keep your finger in 1 John. Turn uh, forward to 2 Corinthians, just a few books forward, chapter 12. You know, Paul, by God's grace, Paul the apostle was given this vision of heaven. And I love this. This is so fascinating. He says, I, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by, this is in verse one, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, Paul here is defending his apostleship. There are people who are coming along in the church and they're saying, don't listen to Paul. I mean, we're true apostles. Paul's nobody. And they're boasting about these visions and here we've got a word from the Lord and it's con conflicting with Paul and Paul's being shoved to the sidelines and yet we know, don't we? Paul is the legitimate apostle. So Paul's like, you want proof. You want to hear what I've seen. Just listen to this for a minute. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, and that's Paul. He's speaking of himself here, but he's speaking, look, with great humility. That's his point. He doesn't want to boast, and so he's trying to approach this with great humility. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Okay, first heaven is the air we breathe. Second heaven in the Jewish mindset would have been space. Third heaven is heaven, heaven. And then he says this, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. He didn't even know if he was really there in person, like it was just so amazing and so incredible, or if it was just simply a vision, his spirit was brought there, it was a dream, I don't, I don't know. God knows. Look at verse three, and I know that this man was caught up, look at the word he chooses, into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard, listen, this is what I want to focus in here. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And you, know, the, you could translate that like this. Paul said, I heard things that would be unlawful for me to speak of. In other words, the things I've seen, the things I've heard, what I've witnessed in this paradise experience, it would be a crime to try to describe them in human language. Like, you don't understand what I've seen. I couldn't put it into words. The beauty, the splendor, the majesty. Like, I, I can't formulate human words to depict it for you. And by the way, this experience, look, Paul says 14 years ago, if you do the math and you track that out, this is during Paul's training period. He had just been converted on the road to Damascus, and then somehow in the next three years, God gives him this amazing experience. And here's the point of me saying that. I believe this vision of heaven sustained Paul through some of the most arduous, painful anxieties and circumstances this life has to offer. 
He's like, go ahead and beat me, stone me, whip me, put me in prison, put me in stocks, right? Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care, like shipwrecked without food. Like, how do you make it through things like that? He's like, oh, you have no idea what I've seen. You have no idea what awaits me. And that's why Paul can say, you know, I, I am convinced that these present like, pains and circumstances and anguish are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all compare. This, this view of heaven, this eternal mindset made Paul a powerful force on the earth even when, listen, this is so important, even when his world was crumbling and falling to pieces. I, I want to show you another text. Keep, keep your finger in John and flip forward to Revelation, the, the last book of the Bible. Revelation 21. Here, this is John. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. He has this vision of heaven, and and he uses earthly language to describe the glory of heaven. And and we don't have time to go into the full picture that he gives. I just want to read for you a few things that I I hope gives your heart some comfort and hope today, especially if you're going through some troubling times. He says in verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Just a side note, I had a friend send me a video last night. He was out swimming with uh, sharks. How many of you here are terrified of sharks? Okay, did you hear this? No sea in heaven. Sharks, evil. See? (laughs) It's just a footnote. Um, the sea was no more, this is a radically altered place. And, and look at what he says in verse two. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Just the beauty, the splendor, the majesty. Can you just, just get a picture, a glimpse in your heart? And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I want you just to hear, in the beauty and splendor of heaven, I want you to notice what's absent from heaven. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. <sighs> Tell me that doesn't, doesn't bring peace and comfort to your heart. And there is a time coming, there is a place coming where, listen, all those tears, by the way, the word of God tells us that the Lord, he, he stores up your tears in a bottle. He cares for you. He knows what you've gone through. But there's a day coming, listen, where not only will you be introduced to the splendor, the beauty, the majesty of heaven, that you will have no more troubles, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears and weeping. It'll be joy everlasting. There's such power in this, and it explains, doesn't it, why some, those who know Christ, can be on their dying bed and say, I don't care. Like, we can be like Paul and say, hey, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You know, Paul could say that. He'd been there. Take me. I've heard people say that. I'm just, I just want to go. See, how can you say that? Because you know what awaits you is so much more glorious. A lot of us have such a hard time. In fact, some of us, I think, fear the idea of heaven because we just don't get it. <laughs> like, you know, okay, we think of heaven and instantly we have these strange ideas and we're like, well, it sounds really boring. Like, what are we going to do in heaven? You're going to be sitting around on clouds with baby angels eating bagels and cream cheese. <laughs> like, like, and if, if that's heaven, I get it. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, maybe I'll think I'll pass. Besides, everybody knows we're not eating bagels and cream cheese. We're eating Big Macs. And your stomach won't hurt after. That's the best part. <laughs> That's the best part. Look, if you can just for a moment imagine every good experience you've ever had, every powerful experience of joy, of true lasting satisfaction, 
Maybe it's the birth of your child. Maybe it's your wedding day. Maybe you just have a, an array of memories. Maybe it's times with your family, your parents, your grandparents, and you just have all of these incredible experiences that have given you so much joy. If you can combine all of those things for a moment in your heart and just think, wow, that's amazing. Listen, they pale in comparison to the pleasures that you will get to experience forever. And just in case you were wondering, you can keep your finger in Revelations, flip back to John. I just want you to hear the assurance of Jesus' words. He said, I'm going to get your place ready. I'm anticipating your arrival. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Uh, like back in verse two, if, if it were not so, would I have told you this? He's wanting to affirm like the confidence and the assurance. Don't you get it? Like this is set in stone. You ever made a reservation? I've done that. You made a reservation and you, you, you expect to go there like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I know you made a reservation, but we're full. We, I'm t- we can send you across the street to this really dumpy hotel. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. When we get there, there's gonna be a welcoming band playing. Everything is gonna be ready. In fact, when you walk up to the counter in heaven, excuse me, forgive the metaphor, but you know what the answer is gonna be? Oh, sir, you're finally here. We've upgraded you to the penthouse suite. <laughs> Every one of you. It's better than you could have ever imagined. It's more than you ever would have expected. In verse three, I just think it's so, so powerful. If I go and prepare a place for you, I, I, here's what you need to camp out on in your mind. I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am, you may, that where I am you may also be. People often talk about when they get to heaven, I, I can't wait to see my grandpa and I can't wait to see, you know, maybe it's a loved one that you know and you know what, there's truth to that. I'm not, not in any way dismissing that but the greatest joy in this great family reunion where our loved ones, Lord willing, await us, will be centered around Jesus Christ. And do you notice the emphasis of this verse in verse three? I will come that where I am, you may be also. Do you see what the centerpiece is in heaven? I mean, forget about the streets of gold. They're as, worth, they're as worthwhile as asphalt is to you today. That's what it's gonna feel like. You're like, streets of gold, a great pearl at the gates. It's gonna be as worthless to you as a iron gate and asphalt. The great prize and reward of heaven is Jesus Christ. The future hope is in existence with him intimacy with him forever listen unhindered by sin unhindered by your own right your own just ridiculous bent towards sin your own love of sin that constantly is an obstacle obstacle for you and for me to experience the power and presence of jesus in our lives it will be gone and there will just be unhindered communion and fellowship and i love right the revelation 21 if you still got it there did you notice what the centerpiece is in this too verse 3 i heard a loud voice here's the declaration of heaven behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god like the presence he's just he's there he's wiping every tear there's no more it's all gone Let's flip one page over to Revelation 22. I just, I love this too, verses one through five, just follow along again. This picture of heaven, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And here it is. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will look at him, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Man, I can't wait to get to heaven. We will look into the face of Jesus Christ. We will behold his glory. 
we will hear his voice and all we will be able to do is bow down, fall on our face and worship the Lamb of God who is worthy of all our praise. This is our future hope. And it is intended to provide comfort in the midst of our circumstances. And by the way, the refrain of chapter uh, 22 of Revelation is this. We see it two times over. Behold, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. You can hear Paul, right? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Look to your future hope. Lastly, cling to your only hope. Cling to your only hope. says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, I think he vocalizes here the perplexity of the group. He's their spokesperson, and he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? You ever been told to get somewhere that you don't know how to go? And in an instant, your mind, you're just confused, like, hold on, hold on don't, don't, don't go anywhere. Maybe I could follow you there, right? Maybe I can just jump in your car. You can take me with you. I don't want to get lost. It's like, how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him in one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture, which, by the way, it, it is probably the most offensive statement to our culture. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. They're anxious over whether they'll even get there or how they're going to get there. And I think there's a sense with the, the impending death of Jesus. You want to know what strikes to their very heart? The thought of death themselves. What happens when we face death? It's a thought that none of us like to really dwell upon. I was speaking with somebody on Friday night, a, a friend of mine, and a friend of his is in a car accident a year ago on Friday, and, and he said to me, he looked at me, he doesn't know Jesus Christ, he looked at me, he says this, I think about that every single day. You know, the Word of God tells us that there's a reason we think about death and eternity. It's because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity into the heart of every human being. It is a certain reality for all of us. The question is, what's waiting around the corner for you? Do, do, do you know where you will spend eternity? This is not a, a gamble. This is not a game you want to play. This life is but a vapor. You blink and it's gone. But eternity lasts forever. You know, death isn't natural. Death is an intrusion into God's creation caused by the effect of sin. It is a consequence of rebelling against a holy, perfect, loving God. It is the consequence of saying, God, I do not want you to be king over me. Get off my throne. Move over. I will take the reins from here. When Adam did that, Death entered the world, the curse of death spread all through creation, and now even creation groans to be restored back to its original condition. One day all of this will be burned with fire, be purged, and be restored into the beauty it was intended to convey. Death is our enemy. And yet, those who know Jesus Christ can say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? There are many in this world who have a legitimate fear of death. But the good news in Jesus Christ is there doesn't have to be. And the fear of being lost is absolutely crippling, just in an earthly sense of being lost and unable to find our way. It is a devastating reality, and yet the fear of being lost for eternity ought to be utterly devastating to our hearts. You know, I just, I was thinking about this yesterday a little bit, 
and I was doing a little bit of reading and I was just, I was so shaken by this thought that did you know every person you interact with has to face the reality of eternity? Every person we look at isn't just existing temporarily. Every person we look at isn't just a mere mortal. No, no, everybody we look at and interact with on a daily, weekly, yearly, a lifetime basis is absolutely, listen, immortal. They will last forever. And the thought of that is just shaking me even now as I say it, I, I, there's great anxiety in my own heart about the condition of the world and how often we walk through this life. Some of you in this room, you do not think about your eternity. You're not thinking clearly about where you are going to suffer and live forever apart from the blessing and presence of God. All you care about is now. You're just so caught up with this life and, and man, what can I do to have fun here and who cares about God? I'll figure it out when I get there. And God says, no, no, you need to snap out of it. Wake up, oh sleeper. This is not something to trifle with. And, and we walk, listen, Christians, listen, we walk around in this world with people who are going into eternity and all we can do is walk around and live our daily lives as if they don't even exist. And that's, that's not a guilt trip, that's a reality. And I say this to my own heart. I, I want to be somebody who lives for eternity. I want to be somebody who views people as eternal souls, not just temporary living a life and enjoying their time here and now. This is it. Every moment counts. Every moment. There is inherent within us the knowledge that we will face judgment because God has placed it there. Every one of us knows that when, when somebody dies, they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every even unbeliever knows they rest, they have a conscience, they have morals, and every unbeliever has to suppress the truth in their own soul that one day they will give an account to the one who has made them. And so Thomas cries out, I don't know the way, and Jesus says, yes, you do. Yes, you do. I am the way. I am the way. And I am marching to the cross. Don't you see, Thomas? My death is the very thing that paves the way into the presence of God. In the world, they just, they hate this truth. And some of you even in this room are like, how dare you say that? How can you say that? That sounds exclusive and that sounds, you know, just absolutely intolerant. And, and listen, if, if I was standing up here saying, this is just my opinion, or this is what he inhales things, I would agree with you. That would be utterly ignorant of me. But here's what Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, says to you. I am the way. I am the way. And then he, he makes it so clear. Look, the definite article. He's not a way, and that's, you know, it's not all roads lead to the top of the mountain. I am the way and the truth and the life. Cling to your only hope. Jesus is that only hope. Only Jesus. We sang it this morning. And the point here, Jesus is he's compiling these words because he's, he's, he's building this case. He's saying this, you know, I am the way because, you could insert in there, this is the, the, the flow of the grammar, because I am the truth. I come, I speak the truth, I speak as the Father has taught me, I come representing him. I am the exact imprint, I am the exact image of the Father. I am God in human flesh, I am the culmination of truth. That's why I'm the way. And he says, I am the way, I am the truth, because I am the life. Just think about that for a second. He is the life. He is the author of life. He is the source of life. He is the sustainer of life, Scripture says. And in him is found the fullness of life. He is true life. He is where life finds its meaning and purpose. While everybody in this world is, is just scavenging, scavenging everywhere to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction, Jesus says, don't you get it? You were made to know God through me. I am, I am God's gracious love gift to you to restore you to your Father. The scriptures are laced with this truth. The exclusivity of the gospel, though it is an offensive truth to many, listen, it is the only hope for the world. 
And the proud, unbending heart takes offense to this because it's exclusive. And how dare you say you have it figured out? How dare you say you have the right way and others have the wrong way? Listen, but the humble heart hears that truth and rejoices because where you were once lost, now you are found. Where error and confusion once reigned, now clarity and truth prevail. Where death was the experience and hell the destination, now abundant life, eternal life, and true life exists, and it's only through Jesus. No one, he just wants to clarify for us, no one comes to the Father except through me. It is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus where all of our sin is paid in full and where the righteous life of Christ is imputed to our account that we can stand before a holy God. How does that happen? Trust in Jesus. So will you trust him? Will you trust him? Some of them, will you trust him unto life today? Will you humble yourself? Will you repent of your sins? And will you trust that he has paid it all? Will you trust that he will give you the victory that you cannot give yourself? Christian, in your difficult circumstances, will you remember your present hope? Will you remember that he's always been faithful? You remember that he's never given you a reason to not trust him. Will you look to your future hope that this isn't all there is, that he has prepared a place for you and if he has gone there to prepare a place, he will come again for you and bring you to where he is? And will you cling to your only hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you cling to the fact that he has come from heaven to earth to make the way? He would lay down his life for you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, church, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Jesus Christ. Instead, let your hearts be encouraged this morning. Instead, understand that you have a God who loves and cares for you. Instead, you have a God who hears you and calls you near to him. You have the most stable, sure, comforting hope in the universe. You have Jesus Christ. And in light of that, I want to encourage you, would you just bow your heads with me? I'm going to invite the team to come up. In light of the hope we have in Jesus, in the fact that not only should our hearts not be troubled, that they should be comforted at peace. I pray this morning that regardless of your circumstances, your heart might be filled with worship to God. As, as you bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I just want to remind you of the words that are being sung in heaven. Just listen to this with your heads bowed. And, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him with li- with li- who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and here's what they sing and this, I pray, is the cry of your heart this morning. Worthy are you, o- our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created.